This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. So this is the inaugural Sally Ride Science STEAM series, and what a great opportunity. I look across the room. We have folks from education, workforce development, and our partners with the library system. The goal of the quarterly program is to better connect all of us who are passionate about the importance of STEAM education, also find ways in which we can offer high-quality and impactful STEAM programs for students throughout our region. Today's program is part of a larger partnership, something we're very proud of. UC San Diego is now the custodian and the management partner of Sally Ride Science and most recently partnered with the downtown library, not only to use this downtown library location as a hub, but all of the other 36 locations throughout the system as we roll out STEAM for everyone in our region. This partnership is about igniting passion for STEAM. And it, you can see some of the students as we work with the students here at the downtown library. Their comments go along like this. Wow. Girls can do this? Wow. It's not just for boys, and that's important. That's the impact we're looking for. Today's program will focus not just on the importance of STEAM education, but also we'll dive into how we ensure access and equity in STEAM, STEAM programming and teacher development. This is a, cri this is a critical element of what we do because we want to help prepare students for jobs of the future. And we want to ensure that we have our city's ongoing prosperity. Today, not only do we have uh, educators, as we noted, and counselors, but also workforce partnership with Andy, uh, science uh, leaders from Unified School District, and our esteemed panel. Helping us guide through the important discussion today will be DeLuke Smith. He's the president and CEO of San Diego Youth Symphony Conservatory. DeLuke is in his 12th season, and actually, I found out that last week it was, became your 13th. You're going on your 13th. And uh, congratulations. Please welcome DeLuke, who will introduce our panelists and help shape today's dialogue. Thank you, Ed. Thank you all for being here this morning. I do want to cover a couple of quick items quickly. Um, first of all, thanks to UCSD Sally Ride Science for continuing to lead the local and national and really international um, conversation and work around STEAM education. I want you to know that uh, our program today is being filmed by UCTV, so if you have friends and colleagues that you want to share this content with, you're going to be able to do that soon, and Ed will give you more information on how to do that through the STEAM channel. Okay, so we've got a great panel here. Let me just uh, run through, uh, introduce each of them, and then we'll get to our questions. So Dr. Karen Flammer, immediately to my right. Um, she is a third-generation physicist, director of education for Sally Ride Science, and director of education outreach and training at the San Diego Supercomputer Center at UC San Diego. Uh, she is leading a National Science Foundation-funded project to train more computer science teachers in the Sweetwater District, Vista, and San Diego Unified. She's got 20 years of experience leading large-scale STEM outreach and professional development programs at narrowing the gender gap in STEM fields. In 2001, she helped co-found Sally Ride Science and has overseen two of its most significant programs, the Sally Ride Earth Cam and the Sally Ride Science Academy. And you're going to see a trend here in just a moment. She earned her doctorate from UC San Diego. So welcome. Um, Dr. Heather Latimer is the interim executive director at the Institute for Entrepreneurship in Education at the University of San Diego, where she is also an associate professor of learning and teaching. Her key projects include um, the STEAM master's degree and STEM Next, both to increase STEM after, uh, which STEM Next is to provide um, after school providers, YMCA's Boys and Girls Club with stronger STEM education offerings. She has taught both middle and high school, is the author of two teacher textbooks. Her research focus has been on literacy, teacher education, teacher professional learning, and 21st century learning in international contexts. Uh, Dr. Latimer also earned her doctorate in education from UC San Diego. And then Dr. Francisco Escobedo, he has been an educator for over 25 years. He became superintendent of Chula Vista Elementary School District in 2010, and Chula Vista Elementary School District is California's largest K-6 
district with nearly 30,000 students, 45 schools, and more schools and students on the way. I'm um, proud to also share that as an outcome of our partnership, San Diego Youth Symphony and Conservatory's partnership with Chula Vista, Dr. Escobedo has led the district to restore visual and performing arts for all 30,000 of those students after a 15-year absence. He's been a, a teacher, of course, but also a principal, an assistant superintendent, a vice president of achievement and operation for a charter system, a statewide charter system. He's currently a member of the education school at San Diego State's faculty, and he, too, earned a doctorate from UC San Diego. <laughs> it's a theme here, exactly. So, um, so let's, we're going we're gonna to try to cover a range of topics, um, really, that are, again, kind of why are we here and what are some of the big outcomes that we're trying to achieve through uh, the work that all these folks are leading. And um, as you know, we're here um, under the namesake banner of Dr. Sally Ride, and we want to start with her. We want to start um, with Karen, who worked directly with Dr. Ride, giving us a little bit of a sense of... What were, the, what were the achievements both in her own life? Who were the mentors and inspirations that compelled her to choose science as a career and then choose to give back um, through science education? So, Karen, can you make an introduction to Dr. Rideforth? Sure. Thank you, Delug. Um, so most of you, when you mention the name Sally Ride, most people know that she was uh, American's first woman to travel into space. Um, but it's really important, and I think it's going to lay the foundation for the discussions we have here this morning, to know how she got there. Um, you know, the astronaut program in our country was started in 1959. The first class of astronauts was chosen for the program Mercury, which, which was basically to prove that America could put somebody in space. There were seven male astronauts selected for that program. Um, President Eisenhower at the time uh, dictated that they all be military test pilots. Uh, then NASA continued to send people into space, men into space. We had the Apollo program that sent men to the moon. All of a sudden in 1977, NASA knew that it had to open up and increase its astronaut class because the space shuttle program had started. They also, for the first time in history, knew that they had to open it up to include females. Um, something happened in 1972. There was the Equal Opportunity Employment Act, which meant that no longer could they discriminate against women. So Sally Wright at the time was a PhD student at Stanford, finishing her PhD in physics, about to graduate, defend her thesis. She saw this ad and she thought, wow, I love space. I love exploration. I'm going to apply to be an astronaut. It had never before occurred to her that she would want to be an astronaut. She applied. NASA received 8,000 applications. 7,000 were from males. 1,000 were from females. Out of that 8,000, they selected 35. Six of them were females, and Sally was one of them. So Sally also was the first one of the six females to actually travel into space in 1983. Um, you know, she instantly, she broke the glass ceiling, she instantly became a hero, a role model. All of a sudden, there was girls all over the country saying now that they wanted to be an astronaut for the first time ever because they saw a role model ahead of them be an astronaut. Uh, Sally got a lot of press attention. She, she didn't like it. She shied away for it. She thought it should be just a natural occurrence that women were astronauts. Um, fast forward, she did a lot of speaking out in education to schools, to teachers. Of course, she was invited to speak. And she noticed that girls and boys, their eyes lit up when she started talking about space and exploration and fun things. And it was the seed that gave her this idea that we need to get more students and girls interested in science, and we need to figure out how to, how to hook them, how to engage them, how to, how to make them feel that they belong in these fields. So she came to UCSD in the late uh, 1989 as a physics professor. That's how I met her. Two female physicists seemed to find each other. They're a minority. Um, we started working together, and in 2001, we decided to form Sally Ride Science um, with the idea that we needed to develop resources and programs to ignite students' interest in STEM. Sally would seen that it was possible um, by her being a role model, by her knowing that you can't, just set, you can't just stand up and teach them. You have to develop 
creative learning opportunities for students to engage them in STEM. And that's why STEAM and these conversations are so important today. So I just, I want to point out that we're going to talk a lot this morning, but policy is important. Policy had to change for Sally to be able to apply to be an astronaut. And then she was a role model. And that changed and has changed right now. The last class of astronauts uh, selected in 2013, there were eight of them. Half of them were females. So we've really come a long way, and now women all over are thinking, starting from being young girls, that they can be astronauts. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you all to find out how many of you actually watched the commercials at the Academy Awards this week. Um, there was a new GE commercial about Millie Dresselhaus, who I'd never heard of before Sunday night. Um, she was the first uh, woman to achieve a full professorship at MIT, and, and GE has pr- now produced a commercial um, about Millie just this past month that basically asks the question, what would the world be like if women scientists were treated as celebrities? And then they treat this woman who has now just passed away, but at the time 86 years old, as a celebrity. Little girls are opening up Millie dolls, and they want Millie lunchboxes, and Millie's faces on magazines. And the real message of this ad from GE is, we want 20,000 women in technical jobs by the year 2020. So the conversation we're having today is changing the nature of the way employers think about this and the way that education systems think about this issue and the importance of this equity. So we want to turn to Karen, I'm sorry, turn to Heather um, and, and kind of investigate this question of how, how has the equity conversation changed? Where are we seeing progress in STEM fields and where are we still seeing some need for extra effort? Great. Thank you. So we've come a long way. Uh, Certainly in some fields, we've gained parity. Uh, uh, Medical science in in particular, women and men enter and exit medical school in approximately even numbers. Uh, um, We have also seen significant growth in students of color who are pursuing medical degrees. So there are some areas where we really have achieved tremendous progress and tremendous growth uh, um, to the point where we are no longer saying that that is a primary concern. However, there are still other areas where both uh, uh, women and uh, uh, students of color uh, are not represented at even numbers with their white male peers. Uh, um, Engineering, uh, uh, physical sciences in particular, are areas where there isn't the level of uh, um, acceptance, engagement, support uh, uh, that we want to see in those areas for exactly the reasons that Delug just mentioned in terms of being able to, to train people who will solve the problems of tomorrow for the industries of both today and the future. Uh, we do see some potential bright spots in those areas, though, so I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's awful. And certainly, it's better than it was two or three decades ago by a long shot. Uh, um, but a couple of pieces that I want to point out, and it follows uh, on uh, uh, Karen's description of the opportunities that Sally provided in terms of being a role model and talking about changing the way in which we approach the content. Um, and two areas in the engineering physical sciences piece that I think are important to mention, because we see students dropping out at all levels. It's not that we're seeing nobody entering. It's not that we're seeing there's parity in entering college, but then we have a tremendous drop-off. We see a drop-off at the elementary level, at the middle school level, at the high school level, and then at the college level. We do have a significantly greater number of women and students of color who enter the physical sciences and engineering field than will get degrees in those fields. So we see this concern at, across the board in terms of the K-20 education spectrum. Um, but a couple bright spots, just to, to say that there isn't uh, um, a, 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 no reason for hope. There's lots of reasons for hope. Uh, and two pieces to point out. Project Lead the Way is an organization that a few years ago um, started to really do some great hands-on work in engineering, starting in elementary school, and then really doing some great stuff in high school. And I think that gets to your comment of we need the experience, right? We can't just say, oh, you could be an engineer someday. If individuals, particularly first-generation college-going students who don't have professional engineers at home, professional scientists at home that they can say, oh, you know, 
third generation physicist is amazing. Uh, um, you're in the family business. If that's not the family business, having those hands-on experiences to understand what that looks like is a really important piece of it. And then at the university level, I think particularly in engineering programs, Harvey Mudd up in the LA area, Olin College of Engineering, they have intentionally reframed the way in which they approach the engineering sciences um, to to try to get rid of some of those um, barriers that were really designed as sorting points in a lot of ways and discouraged a lot of students from being able to see themselves in these roles. So uh, um, they've led the way, and particularly Olin has been very intentional not only about providing a great opportunity for their students to have access to education, but inviting faculty from across the country. Uh, uh, they've had hundreds of faculty, thousands probably, uh, from hundreds of different colleges who have participated in some of their summer workshops and are really looking at reframing the way in which they approach engineering education. Can you uh, just give us a, a glimpse into the history of this change in the medical field? Kind of what were some of the, the early choices that were maybe being made that have allowed us to reach parity today? Do you, can you recall any of those? Um, you may be able to speak to this more than I can. I think, you know, intentionally reaching out and being and recruiting individuals is a big piece of it. And talking about pairing people with role models is a part of that as well. So that it really is about not just saying we want women, but redesigning structures, redesigning systems to ensure that there's mentorship and there's support along the way. Right. And I, I think it's also... Um, I think the problem right now with computer science and engineering is there's a lot of micro-messaging that goes out that those fields, that it's a masculine culture, that those fields aren't suited for women. Um, and then that's something that, that it perpetuates. You know, parents have those ideas. Teachers have those ideas. So in some sense, young children, girls and boys, really don't have a hope unless that they, they, they feel that it's a field that they can identify with. And I think the importance so much right now for the adding the E, the A to STEM and make it STEAM is it implies that there's going to be what I call creative learning environments. And um, Heather referred to um, Harvey Mudd. You know, five years ago, they had a huge problem. They had 10% in their computer science freshman class were females. And they knew that they had to change that. There's a big problem going to be with filling our jobs coming up. So they changed the culture of the freshman classes. They had the programming classes be working on problems that were that had social impact because a lot of studies show that girls you know, are, are, care more about and they want to go into fields that they, they can make a difference in and help society. So they also brought in, to Heather's point, they brought in a lot more female computer science professors and TAs. It totally changed the culture. They now have 50% of their computer science graduates are female. So all these small interventions, um, they do make a difference. And there are also, one more thing is, I think in any field, there has to be a critical mass. I mean, medicine occurred slowly. Law is another example that has gender parity right now and just it's a function of time you know that there are more and more females have to see other females ahead of them um, and know that that pathway is open to them so this is a great segue to our, our next question for dr. Escobedo um, because achieving equitable access to um, steam fields stem and the arts uh, is challenging and there's an intentionality that has to be brought to bear on how to make that happen um, UC San Diego from the outset of this effort uh, named it as STEAM, um, really recognized the connection and I, I'll just share one little quick anecdote, um, I was at the Boeing Corporation's 100th anniversary celebration and realized that um, they prioritize arts education as much as they prioritize the other STEM subjects because they realize that they're looking for people who can imagine tomorrow's problems before they even start to figure out how to, how to solve those problems. So, so for you, being at the elementary level and really being that entry point for students to come into these fields and begin to imagine careers for themselves, how have you as a district uh, approached this question of equity and equitable access and kind of what are some of the early results you're seeing? For part of, of equity, I have to think about... Um, the gaps that exist. And I think one of the issues that we are facing in our society is what I call the opportunity gap and the interest gap. 
I mean, if you have a little brother, little sister, niece, nephew, one of the things you, you may ask, hey, how, how was school today? Do you enjoy school? And many, many times they say, no, it's boring, right? I think that's the number one disease we find in, in, in our school system is that uh, students find the classroom boring. They'd rather be with their little uh, iPhones and, and just play their, their games, right? So it's really critical that we create a stimulating, meaningful, relevant environment uh, for our students. And that's where the arts come in. You know, we, we focus so much on, on humans doing things, our kids doing, doing, doing. And, and, and what the arts do, they allow students to be human beings rather than human doers. And when we, we, we started, um, we started actually bringing in the art in a, in a, in a pilot way and to schools back in 2010. And we, we saw transformation happen. Students started to come to school. Students started to behave. Parent engagement increased. We had two parents typically in a back-to-school night, and suddenly when students performed, the whole the auditorium was filled, and not just with parents, with grandma, grandpa, uncle, and aunt. Some, something that the arts do, that science, technology, engineering, and math can't do by themselves, is that it's a glue that brings people together as a community. And, 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 it, and for me, it, it's, it's such a tragedy when schools, when budget... Are, the budgets aren't doing well. That the arts are usually the first things that go. You know, in Chula Vista, we made it so that if we do have a budget crisis, the arts would be the last thing to go, uh, because the arts—they're just as important as science, technology, engineering, and math. And you know, one of the things that we do to, to go back to your questions on equity is that we believe in Chula Vista that every individual, every child is an individual of great worth. So we better get to know the child. We need to know their strengths, we need to know their interests, and we need to know their values. And once we know, know each individual child, we try to find a way, how do they fit in, into this world, right? What are those jobs or the jobs that may, may happen? We, and we try to create a curriculum that's connected to their, their strengths, their interests, and their values. So, you know, we invested about $15 million to make this happen. Uh, we invested, uh, we hired 70-plus uh, art, music, drama, theater teachers, uh, we have a innovation station where every six, every single sixth graders go through. They do a thir- survey. We we do capture their interests, their values, and their strengths. We try to find out how do they fit into society. You know, what, what how are they going to be meaningful in the day? Uh, uh, you know, in, in the job of tomorrow. You should see when you go into these this innovation station. Their their spirits, their 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 hearts just light up, and they finally that passion is 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 just emitted, and and it does carry over in the classroom. So I I think when you talk about equity, is how do we light the passion in the lives of of each individual student because they're very different. If you ever have a chance to see one of the best TED talks I've heard, it's called the Myth of Average. And I believe in, in education, we always try to teach to the average child. I, we have to change that, 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 that paradigm, and we need to shift, is how do we teach to that individual child, no matter what ethnicity, what gender, uh, what cultural background they come in, is how do we cater uh, a, an amazing learning environment that includes the arts, that includes science and engineering and math, but it has to be specific for that child. Uh, and I understand you're actually now building into your new school sites innovation center, so it's not just an, an external field trip experience. It's going to start to become part of the embedded exactly. geography exactly. of the campus. You know, I do believe that... Um, 
function follows form. Like this is an amazing auditorium, by the way, and and it and invites a setting where you're connected to the outside, where um, you know there's there's it's a lot of very in, interactivity, right? And so in in how we're setting up our schools, you need to have natural lighting. You need you need to be connected to to the world outside, and and we're building our schools purposely to have maker spaces embedded in in our schools so we have pods at every grade level where where students are able to uh, experiment where they're able to create where they're able to um, also connect art with uh, technology and at, at the same time allows our teachers to collaborate in a very creative way uh, so and and we're working actually with USD and because we have to help our teachers shift pedagogy right they 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 can't be that sage on the stage Jesus like we're doing right now but <laughs> but but um, yeah so 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 let's bring them all up <laughs> yeah, yeah let's bring them all up here um, but but we we need to shift how how we're we're teaching our students so, so. again a perfect setup. You'd think I'd scripted these guys, wouldn't you? Um, so we do want to talk about teachers a little bit. And um, Karen and Heather, both you, you each are playing roles in teacher training. And we'll, we'll let's kind of look at that. And then, and then we'll look at what culture is required on the campus once you've worked with, with teachers. So either one of you would like to go first and kind of talk about um, what you've seen both in the, the evolution of teacher training now, really in the last 10 to 15 years as it relates to these fields, and what do, what, what do teachers need to be well prepared for delivering this kind of subject matter? Um, sure. So um, pedagogy, so, you know, so much has changed. Um, uh, subjects aren't, um, there's not a single, you know, it's not just chemistry, biology, math now. The, the world has become so multidisciplinary, and I think that that's very important to point out. One, one thing that's so important about what you're creating in Chula Vista is a lot of the research shows that the reason girls shy away from some of these uh, physical sciences, computers, science, engineering, and math is because they don't have the confidence. They don't have, they, it's, you know, it's, it's twofold. They don't have the confidence. They don't think that they can succeed, and they think they have to be you know, rocket scientists. <laughs> um, you know, they have to be the A-plus students. And so a lot of the training that, that we've done, Sally Ride Science, is to train teachers. We have a very robust program that we developed called, um, it's a training program, Ignite Students' Interest in STEM and STEM Careers. And um, a lot of it is what we're talking about today. It's making educators, teachers, parents, first of all, aware of the, the, the problem we have now, you know, in terms of the non-gender equity and minority, you know, equity throughout some of these disciplines, and the importance of science literacy right now for all, and technology literacy for all students, because every job that these, that, you know, we tell teachers, they're training, they're teaching their students and there's going to be jobs that aren't even available now that will be available by the time these students get out of high school and college. So what's most important is that they get a strong foundation in all these STEM and STEAM subjects. And in this program, this Ignite Student Interest in, in STEM and STEM Careers, uh, particularly at the elementary school level, there's not a lot of time sometimes to teach science unless you blend it in with the arts and with the nonfiction literacy. And so a lot of our training is making teachers aware of all the STEM careers. Making, we use what you just alluded to. We have interest surveys that students fill out about their strengths, their weaknesses, how they like to work inside, outside, uh, as a way of mapping that, those, their interests and their beliefs, and I think I can, into actual STEM careers. So a lot of it, the importance, I think, is making them aware of these careers and the pathways. And again, I was lucky. It was a no-brainer that, that I had a father who wanted you know, one of his four children to be a third-generation physicist. Sally's parents were not physicists. Her, her dad taught political science. But she, her parents encouraged her, and they, they bought her telescopes and all kinds of you know, learning uh, you know, tools um, so that at least she got that kind of support. Not all kids have that, and a lot of the disadvantaged kids don't have that. So I think the role that our professional de development can be is to give teachers the resources and the motivation to, to provide that for their students. 
Absolutely. I think one of the things that you said that's a lot of things that you said that were important, but one that particularly stood out for me was that the idea of you have to see yourself, you have to experience that. We know that the research shows that that girls in particular uh, um, start tuning out of science and being able to see themselves in STEM fields around third and fourth grade. So if we don't capture them early, if the students in Dr. Escobedo's schools aren't seeing themselves engaged in science, engaged in STEM fields, STEAM fields, they're not going to pursue that, uh, um, despite whatever... uh, uh, elements we put in at the high school or the college level, they, we need to start really early. Um, in terms of teacher education and teacher professional learning, you know, one of the things that, that we've really emphasized is to make sure that as we are training teachers, we're getting rid of some of these silos. And I think that goes back to what STEAM versus STEM is all about. Although you know, people in STEM who talk about STEM also talk about breaking down silos. But the idea that instead of training just a science teacher or just a math teacher, or just an art teacher, we're teaching people a way of engaging in learning that is interdisciplinary. Uh, um, Now, obviously, we still need that depth of content understanding because you do need to be able, if a student is struggling with learning, you need to be able to question and, and probe to understand where the misconceptions lie in order to then be able to respond and help them to develop their own understanding. So that content piece is important, and I don't want to diminish that, but it in and of itself is not enough. We need to also talk about how to engage in things like project-based learning, like design thinking, to move beyond the idea that content is static and it's about memorizing information that you then regurgitate into a test. Rather, it's about solving problems. It's about responding to challenges. It's about imagining and asking questions. And that is really the essence of what STEAM is about. It's about creativity and innovation. So training individuals who are prepared and comfortable, because it also takes a level of confidence in the classroom to do that. It's a lot more comfortable to hide behind a textbook and to say, here's the information. I'm the sage on the stage. I'm going to share the information, tell you to read the textbook, tell you to do the problems, and then ask you to regurgitate that information into a test. It's less comfortable to say, you know what, I don't know. We are going to try. We're going to go on this journey together. We're going to figure out how do we solve San Diego's water shortage. Uh, um, We don't entirely know. I don't know all the answers, but let's investigate together. Let's pull in information together. And that takes a level of confidence as a teacher in terms of rethinking what your role is. And it's something that we need to see from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade in terms of how we're supporting our educators in doing this work. Uh, So, Francisco, we're going to... By the way, I just realized I've been calling him Dr. Escobedo, and I've been calling them by their first names. That is terrible. (laughs) So I'm going to referred to you as Dr. Escobedo. He and I work so much together that, and we're in public so often that we... Um, you can call me Karen. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to call you Karen. I'm going to call you Heather. You, you can call, call you me Francisco. Fr- you can call me Francisco. Yes, yeah. fine. So, Francisco, um, so you you've just mentioned you've hired in 70-plus um, new um, visual performing arts teachers. You have uh, thousands of teachers that are working in your system. And as you are confronting, you know, not only the, the uh, subjects related to these areas, but also the, the implementation of the new Common Core State Standards, like the whole, the whole conversation around what learning looks like in a classroom is very different. And so how do, you, how do you ensure that the district is evolving with this and that your teachers are, are evolving? Because ultimately, all of the success of these programs is initially and solely reliant on the, the role that the teacher plays in these individual students' lives. A- absolutely. And, and it's really an interesting how our teachers... Our, our general ed teachers, our classroom teachers, are thirsting for understanding how to integrate the arts when they're teaching science, when they're teaching social studies and math. And, and one of the great unintended consequences is now we have expertise in the school side to help the classroom teachers how to start integrating the arts in the classroom. Because it shouldn't be just once a week, but how, how do we... Uh, create a stimulating environment every single day, every single hour. And so uh, one of the things that we do is, is we collaboration is very critical. Uh, being able to um, work as what we call instructional leadership teams by grade level and across grade levels is very important. So um, teachers being leaders uh, within 
their school teachers learning from one another, um, experimenting, visiting each other. Uh, it, it's it's a real focus. At, so you're at actually asking the teachers to be collaborative learners. Oh, also. absolutely, absolutely. Plus, now they have the time. You see, now they have specific time when the students are released for art or music or drama every single day. Teachers have time to collaborate, and and that that's one of the missing ingredients in most schools is the lack of structured time. Focus time. I mean, especially in the United States, teachers only have about five to ten percent of their working time to collaborate. In most countries, it's about forty-six percent of their time they utilize to collaborate. We're we're at about a twenty-five percent. We still we still need to do more in in in, in that in that sense. But we're getting there. We're get, we're get, I would love for our teachers to at least 40 to 45% of the time to, so they can be with other adults to share ideas, to share best practices, because that's really critical. I mean, um, we can say a lot about changing pedagogy, but you, you don't have enough time to not only share but see exemplars, whether it's in, at your school or at another school, you're missing those important opportunities for your teachers to become better. I want to point out that what Dr. Escobedo does is something that is really, really critical because no matter how great the teachers that we put out are, if we don't have the environments at the school site that are going to support them in teaching in a creative way, in collaborating with their peers, in being treated as professionals, then they're not going to be able to be successful in implementing these STEAM approaches that we've tried so hard to support them in developing in their pre-service teacher education program. We put students, or teachers, into our graduates into schools across the county, and there is a distinct difference in both the success they experience with their students, but also their longevity in the classroom. We know that there's a huge turnover across the country with teachers in their first three to five years. Teachers don't stay if they don't feel like they have the supportive environment, the professional environment, the opportunity to be creative and do what they believe is best for their students. And I think that's a really, really critical issue. No matter how great the students that we prepare, the teachers that we prepare, they need to have the classroom environments, and we need to work together to make sure that those opportunities exist. Right, and I just want to add, I mean, because what you're talking about is you're empowering teachers. You know, and, and you're, you're giving them, um, certainly they have to have the forum, they have to have all the resources, but one reason that, another thing that teachers, the general public doesn't know is we think of our country, and our country is a, an innovator and a leader, but we don't score the highest on the international tests in math and science. Um, there's a lot of countries, European countries, Finland, you know, um, Asian countries that are ahead of us. When you look at the reasons why, a lot of it is the empowerment and respect they give to educators and teachers. They're highly regarded. In some countries, they're regarded just like people here, you know, think of doctors and people in the medical field. And I think that that's something that over time, all of our roles, caring so much about the future success of education and STEAM education, is really uplifting the status of teachers. One more thought that I kind of want to turn to, which is a little bit more conceptual, a little bit more um, thoughtful about why. I mean, in some respects, we've been having this conversation based on an assumption, which is the assumption is equity in education is important. Equity in these fields is important. But we haven't really talked about why. Why is that important? And I I do want to share um, something that that was in the USA Today. It was in USA Today recently, uh, just this month. Code.org announced that it had enrolled more than 18,600 high school students in its advanced placement computer science course. About half of the students are Latino and African American, which would more than double the number of underrepresented minorities in AP computer science classes nationwide. Okay, so that, for those of you that are, are... mathematicians, you know, half of 18,600 is 9,300 students, and that that is going to double the number of Latino and African-American students in AP computer science. Do you know how many Latino and African-American students there are in the United States? There are 6 million. So 
are we supposed to celebrate that as a great achievement? Wow, we have, we have added a fraction of a fraction of a fraction to the total. So I want to um, ask each of our panelists to speak a little bit to this, this question of why, um, not from the all kids need to learn, but sort of what are the longer term implications for us as we, as we see this trend unfold? Um, so there's a prediction that um, by 2022, there's going to be a million more jobs in our country uh, requiring these skills, computer skills, technology skills. And if you look at the numbers that we are graduating right now, and as Heather pointed out earlier, and retaining you know, early on in the career in these fields, we're not going to fill them, right? So we talk about the leaky STEM pipeline. Unless we engage more minority students and more females in these fields, we're going to have a big supply and demand problem with a lot of these jobs. And, and it's also, it's, it's, it's not fair. I mean, it's not fair that all students don't have uh, the same access to these courses, and computer science is one of them. I mean, you're right. This last AP test, there's a new AP computer science principles test that just came out, was just delivered. Um, there was only uh, 18% of uh, Latinos taking that test and 16% um, African Americans. It's, 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 that's not, it's too slow. I mean, there's, there's got to be a change. Something has to happen. One thing, when we talk about policy that could change, biology, chemistry, and math, they're required. They're mandatory pre-college subjects in high school. Um, those are also the fields that have very good gender equality. Other countries, uh, India, Turkey, um, they require computer science and engineering in secondary schools. So one way to help solve this problem, and there is a trend, is to try to make some form of engineering, creative engineering, art engineering, design, mandatory, not electives in high schools, and some form of computer science, not that everybody has to be a programmer, but at least to have to be familiar with how computers work and what computers do. So I think those are some of the policy changes that have to happen if we're going to solve this problem, that we're not going to be able to field the critical, innovating jobs out there for the students that we're educating today. For me, it's almost a moral obligation to have equity. I mean, when you look at uh, poverty, incarceration, all the social ills due to a lack of equity, I mean, that, that in itself, you know, gives you a glimpse of our future if we don't do something about it. About a week ago, I went to a juvenile detention center, and, you know, they were all pretty much minorities. They were. And, and you know, it's, and if you, and you'll see that in, in the population that are incarcerated. In fact, California, I think, has one of the largest incarceration uh, rates in, in, in our nation. So the option is, is do we continue that trend or, or, or do we change and really focus on equity. I mean, I think it's more of what do we value as a society. It, it becomes more of a, of a moral imperative of how do we as a society want to continue. Do we want to continue where everyone has the right to pursue happiness or only some? So it, it, it's, it's pretty basic. And I for think. the people that ultimately are not going to be inspired to change policy because of happiness. Um, $150,000 per student is the cost of incarcerating a juvenile youth. We're not spending that on a per student basis in the public school system. Wouldn't it be great if we did, though? Yeah. Not even close. But uh, so, you know, it's also a question of affordability. Can we not, how can we not afford to do this? Heather. I guess I would make both an economic and a political argument. Uh, um, the economic argument is that our economy, particularly in this region, is heavily dependent on STEM professionals. Uh, um, and right now, 
uh, the county did the county office of education through the achievement gap task force did a study a couple of years ago that looked at the percentage of seventh graders that make it through to some sort of post-secondary degree or certificate that's not necessarily a ba any kind of post-secondary degree or certificate and they found that only 26 percent of our seventh graders will get some sort of post-secondary certification uh, um, of those less than a quarter are stem degrees and certificates and yet our economy is heavily dependent on stem professionals and we continue to bring in uh, h1b visa holders people from other states to support our economy in this region where you know, the mayor wants to talk about an innovation economy if we want an innovation economy we need people who are here who can be supportive of these creative stem focused steam focused jobs um, but the democratic the moral issue, uh, is the political issue, is uh, um, that, you know, we, we've seen increasingly over the past decade, but particularly in this last election cycle, a very bifurcated structure and, and an economic system that is the haves and the have-nots. And we know that the STEM jobs are the ones often that are the professional opportunities, that are the sustainable career fields, that are going to allow you to support a family and to be a pillar in your community. And in order to really have access and opportunity and to avoid becoming a democratic society where we are us against them. We need to ensure that there are opportunities for all of our students, for all of our people to be successful. And having access to STEM and STEAM career fields is a big piece of that. It's not the only piece, but it is a big piece of that. Do we have any questions? We do. Great. Okay. Um, Dr. Escobedo, I'm going to toss this one to you. What do you imagine a typical sixth grade class or school experience will look like in 10 years? It's very interesting. There's a article that came out, I think it was the California Department of Education, Artificial Intelligence, and the whole virtual uh, reality experience. And I do believe that uh, the rate of technology, look at Moore's Law, is increasing in such a rate that I think you, virtual reality will have a significant influence in, in educating a sixth grader, uh, having virtual field trips, hopefully, uh, having an experience of being an apprentice virtually and in, in seeing if, you're, if um, you have a certain propensity for, let's say, um, uh, wanting to be a surgeon, you could actually practice surgery. And I, I really do believe that doors will open significantly in, in these virtual type of, of, of field trips. But also natural setting is extremely important too. And I hope uh, the ability to communicate in various forms, you know, that personal interaction, I, I do believe uh, the whole social emotional aspect in education uh, would heighten also in the next 10 years. I know the whole social-emotional field in education is, is accelerating pretty significantly. Um, and so hopefully in the next 10 years, we'll, we'll have more self-awareness, awareness of one another, awareness of one's environment as well. So maybe that spiritual aspect, I hope, in, in, in the next 10, year, 10 years will blossom as well. Great. I, I'd like to go back to sixth grade, if that's what we're going to do. Um, okay. Um, in late 2014, USA Today reported that employment rates for minorities in STEM fields was lower than graduation rates. Are we seeing any change in this, and uh, will there be jobs available for minorities? I think we already heard, yes, there are definitely jobs um, for minorities and everybody. Um, but are we seeing changes in this employment rate for minorities in STEM fields? Uh, yeah, I think we are, and I, I think that um, forums like this, I think that part of our job, too, is to educate people in industry um, and people, you know, just in our, our local government about that this is a real issue, um, that uh, you, the earlier question, you know, why is it important to have equity? Why is it important to have equity? Well, do we want a, a white male team designing all the latest and greatest and new future products 
for our entire race. I mean, this was a huge problem when Sally was the first female to fly into space. They didn't quite have everything, you know, prepared um, on shuttle flights, you know, for females, right? They had overlooked some needs that, that females have. And so we can't have that. If we're going to be an innovative society, we need people of color. We need people, we need all genders represented um, in, in being the thought leaders and the designers for the future. And I think that there is more awareness in industry. Um, there's, it's not just laws that they have to hire, like the law that made NASA finally open up the astronaut program to females. Um, it has to be that if we are going to be the, le the world leaders, you know, the society, you look, ask what a classroom is going to look like in another 10 years, you know, white males are going to be a minority, right? And, and when you look at different regions, particularly in parts of California, we need to be planning for that. We need to be knowing that, in my mind, that's a good thing. And so, yes, I will say that there is going to be jobs, the jobs available for minorities out of necessity and out of need, I think, will be there. Although I would also add that there needs to be that intentionality, right? You yes. talked about it previously. And some of the studies that I've seen of the, the tech fields I talk about women and people of color at the lower levels, but as you move up into senior management levels, there often isn't the opportunity and they're not the individuals who are represented there to represent a more diverse workforce. Uh, um, and some of that is as simple as the comfort level and the assumption of who should be advanced and, and the assertiveness with which we put forward. I mean, women are notorious for not being as assertive in going after positions, looking at a position and saying, oh, I only fit about 80% of the requirements, so I'm not going to go after it. Whereas our white male counterparts will often look at it and say, oh, I got 40% of that. No problem. I'm going to submit my resume. We need to be not only advocating for ourselves, but we also need to have senior management look at how to shift the way in which they recruit and encourage more individuals to come up through the ranks to provide that opportunity to have real leadership in these areas. And uh, I'm just going to add from the art side, this is also imperative in terms of whose stories are told, which stories are shared. If any of you have seen the, the new show on Amazon called Good Girls Revolt, uh, when Amazon decided not to renew, the entire group of people that was making that decision was male. And there's a great article in The Atlantic about why that in and of itself is a demonstration of the imperative of stories and practices that are encouraging the placement of women and minorities in all decision-making settings. Uh, we've got two more questions, but we're also running up against 9 o'clock. So you're saying, wind it up. Okay. <laughs> Tone it down. Um, so I want to thank our panel for joining us today. Um, thank all of you for being part of this, this morning's gathering. Um, I know that Ed's going to share that there are more opportunities going to be coming up for us through Sally Ride um, Science and through the um, STEAM efforts at UC San Diego. But let's give these folks a great round of applause for their, their leadership and their participation. Just as Sally Ride was a trailblazer, each of them in their own way is continuing to forge that trail. So thank you very much.